If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Welcome to Sound Bites, hosted by registered dietitian nutritionist Melissa Joy Dobbins. Hello, and welcome to the Sound Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Joy Dobbins, a registered dietitian nutritionist. And on the show, I like to delve into the science, the psychology, and the strategies behind good food and nutrition. And I have a really special episode for you today. My guest is Michelle Payne. She is the author of the newly released Food Truths from Farm to Table, who speaks from the intersection of farm and food, to bring clarity and common sense to the grocery store. Known as one of North America's leading advocates, Payne is passionate about getting back to the truth in food raised the right way, by the right people, for the right reasons. She's an in-demand media resource whose work has appeared in USA Today, Food Insight, Food and Nutrition Magazine, Grist, and others, as well as on NPR and CNN. She has earned the Certified Speaking Professional designation awarded to less than 10% of speakers worldwide, and holds degrees in agricultural communications and animal science. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk with you. Your new book is coming out. We're going to talk a lot about that and that whole process and what people can find in the book. And I'm really excited about it. It's just amazing. It's wonderful. But let's talk first about your background and how you came to be involved in agricultural communications, what I like to call you an advocate, a world-renowned speaker, and just really focusing on this area, you know, farm to table, and the whole food truths aspect, which is so important these days. Tell me a little bit about, I know you grew up on a farm, and you have these degrees in ag, but how did your path sort of lead you to where you are now? Sure. Well, it's funny how all the paths seem to come together. I am a farm girl born and bred. I've been a registered Holstein breeder since I was nine years old. My daughter and I still have those beautiful black and white creatures running around our front yard right now, believe it or not. I'm hoping that they're not going to beller during the interview, so that's quiet. Mm-hmm. And I have worked in agriculture and the food business my entire career. I actually started out a fun little factoid that may grow some of your listeners. I sold dairy genetics which means that I sold semen and embryos internationally when I started my career. And that was a lot of fun because I really love genetics. And then I worked for the National FFA Foundation, which is an agriculture education organization. and really learned the power of being able to tell the story of not only agriculture education, but all of agriculture. And at that point, really identified a need because I saw all of this research happening in companies and I saw the distrust that was building. And this 
was back in the 90s. And I realized that we really needed to have a voice in agriculture. And I probably should back up and also say from the food side, my mother was a home economist. I Mm. began baking at a very young age. And I had the opportunity while I was doing my undergraduate work at Michigan State to live in Italy for a summer, Mm. where I became a full-fledged foodie. So all of those paths have kind of led together, opened my own business 16 years ago when I started Cause Matters Corporation as a professional speaker. And really what my mission has been to connect the farm gate to the food plate. And in recent years, that is centered more on connecting at the center of the plate, if you will. So dietitians and farmers and ranchers and chefs and moms and consumers can hopefully sit down and have a more productive conversation. It's so important. And I should mention, I've been following you on Twitter for years and your blog, but I do need to give a shout out to a friend and registered dietitian, Mary Lee Chin, for reintroducing me to you. We've never met in person, but she mentioned that your new book was coming out and the timing is great because this episode will, I believe, be released the day after your book comes out. Is that correct? Absolutely. And kudos to Mary Lee. I I have to tell you a quick story. When I wrote my first book, No More Food Fights, you know, as an author, you're never really sure if you did the right thing and the impact of your work. The day that I knew I had done the right thing was the day that I walked into keynote at the Indiana Dietetic Association and Mary Lee was standing on the stage holding my book up. I had never met her. I didn't know her at that point. And she was holding my book up but telling all the dietitians in the room that they really needed to gain that perspective. So that was a pretty special moment to me. And I think the world of Mary Lee as well. That's wonderful. I do too. Mary Lee is just a phenomenal person and dietitian. So respect the work she does and enjoy being friends with her. She's a joy. She's a delight. So yes. Yes. Thank you, Mary Lee. (laughs) So before we talk more specifically about your book, and thank you for sharing more about your background, I wanted to get into your food philosophy. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, Sure. My food philosophy is really that food does not need to be about emotion. Food does not need to be about guilt. Food should be about celebration. So I sum it up like this. Food is at the center of so many traditions. It is essential to our bodies. Food deserves to be celebrated, enjoyed, and shared. And the same could be said about truth and food. Mm, Very, very cool. I think you probably could see the similarities with my guilt-free RD moniker. And also in my Sound Bites business, I promote sound science, smart nutrition, and good food. And the good food part is really that enjoyment and the celebration. So I echo your food philosophy and really it resonates with me. So you do a lot of speaking. At what point, you kind of mentioned this a little bit, but maybe it's a good time to talk about it a little bit more. At what point did you decide that a book was because I read a little bit about this on your website, you know, when were you like, okay, I just really need to write this book? Well, great question. (laughs) And I have to say anybody who's ever written a book out there, it's always a journey. It's sometimes incredibly rewarding and other times very frustrating. And I knew that the book, because of the fact that flies in the face of sensationalism and celebrity food claims that it would be a highly controversial book when it would release. So I had to be okay with accepting that first. Mm -hmm. But the idea came to me as I was finishing up my first book, No More Food Fights, was to have an aisle by aisle guide to the grocery store, if you will, about some of the myths and some of the misinformation and the half truths, you know, the completely false claims that are out there. It's ridiculous. And so 
We went through the process. I have a wonderful literary agent. I learned about the working with mainstream publishers because that's where this book needed to go, in my opinion, to get the distribution out to the general public. And I saw a lot of editorial bias, quite frankly, a lot of misperceptions about my work and who I was. And it basically verified the fact that I knew that not everyone would agree with the book. And I was perfectly okay with that. So it was finally accepted and we came to terms and I started writing the book and it was very interesting because I actually went through a number of life things that included caretaking of a loved one with cancer while I was writing the book. And let's just say that it was questionable at some point whether I was going to get it done, but I did. I met deadline. I actually turned in 30,000 more words than I was supposed to. Mm. (laughs) So that would be 100,000 total words for anybody who's keeping track. But I'm really proud of the product that came out, not because of my name being on, but because of the people that represents, because of the truth that it represents around food and the fact that it translates science through story, which, as you well know, Melissa, science can be overwhelming, particularly around food. People get a little freaked out when they start thinking about viruses and bacteria and hormones and genetics and scientific things that most people don't think about every day. And so to me, the real challenge was stepping back, finding the stories that would help make sense of all of these claims, identifying the top 25 that would help people reduce guilt, and then really structuring the book so that it went through nine sections of the grocery store and hopefully makes sense to people that they can use as a guide. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I should say the the other part of the title, I don't know if you call it the subtitle, but it's 25 Surprising Ways to Shop and Eat Without Guilt, which I love. And the artwork on your book, there's a story with that too, but it's a question mark made out of food on sort of like a wooden, I don't know if it's a table, but you have a touching story about who created that artwork. Yeah, it's a great story, actually. And this is something that is very telling about the entire book. Many of the stories that are in there are people that I know personally, and I've walked on their farms and ranches, or I've been in their laboratories. And some of them came to me by way of introduction of other friends. And one of those was because in my advisory committee, I was looking for a kind of graphic for the book cover. And one of the ladies that lives in Hawaii volunteered her 16-year-old daughter to create the artwork. And she said, you know, you don't have to use it. And I said, no, we'd love to see what she can do, but it has to have all of the food groups. It has to include a variety of meat. All the meat has to be cooked. It has to include dairy and the eggs need to be white Mm -hmm. just because I wanted to make a statement. And she texted me a picture that night about midnight my time. And it was just beautiful. I got out of bed to look at it and it was totally worth it. So the food art is actually created by a 16 year old in Hawaii and all of the credit goes to her for that beautiful cover. Wonderful. And you also have many contributors to the book. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I do. I have contributors that range from apple growers to yams, and they range from Canada to Florida and Massachusetts to California. I actually just calculated that out today. So there's 55 different contributors. They include food scientists talking about why we use some of the preservatives that we do in food and that we have to understand that we're giving up something if we're going to take out those preservatives. It includes a rancher out of Montana that I actually will be on his ranch in a few weeks here doing a Facebook Live. It includes an apple grower and a cherry grower from my home state of Michigan. It includes corn and soybean growers from Indiana, Illinois and Iowa, some of which grow organic, some of which grow GMO, some of which grow non-GMO. 
And so what I really tried to do was to find people who were willing to share their story around particular topics in the grocery store. And that's why the 25 Food Truths came out, was to be able to help people synthesize, if you will, or really have digestible snippets around all of these critically emotional issues that we seem to get all up in arms about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the 25 food truths to shop and eat without guilt, you actually have an image, a graphic on your site. And I'll also put a copy of that on my show notes and people can share it and pin it on Pinterest and print it out and put it on their fridge if they want. I love some of the things that I read in the book I wanted to share. One thing that you talk about is taking guilt off your food list, which of course, again, resonates with me as the guilt-free RD. But I don't know if it's your introduction or it's a quote at the beginning of the book that you have that I really think sums up sort of the whole purpose of this. And I don't know if it's a dedication, maybe you say, to every person who has felt guilty or confused in the grocery store, may this book give you the permission to feel good about your family's food. I just love that. Oh, well, thank you. Funny story. It was the last piece of the book that I wrote. Mm. And I couldn't decide whether I should make it personal because the book really was written because I kept hearing other moms say, I feel bad when I go to the grocery store. I don't understand how to buy the right food. I don't know what's right. I'm confused. Do I need a science degree? I don't have time to do this, Mm -hmm. right? And to me, that's ridiculous because I go to the grocery store and I'm sure you have a very different lens on Melissa because I was actually just at the grocery store with a dietitian. So I know you all look at things differently. And when I go to the grocery store, I think about the people that produce the food. And I stand at the dairy case and I think about my own cattle. And I think about my cow perfect that I bought for $7,000 when I was 12 years old. And I think about the life lessons I watched my daughter learn through buying her first heifer when she was nine years old and then having offspring from that heifer. And so it's a very personal thing to me, but I realize that not everybody has that perspective So really, the book truly was written to arm people with truths, to know what questions to ask, and to help them be smart about food. Because again, food should be about celebration. It's a basic necessity. It should not be about guilt or emotion. Right. And to your point, you shared with me that, I mean, everybody eats, but only two thirds of the population lives in cities. And many of these people have never visited a farm or a ranch. And, you know, your whole role and purpose is to connect these two worlds and answer these tough questions about food. And, you know, your dedication that we were just talking about, and I've shared this on the show before, and I share this in my presentations. The reason I became a dietitian was to help people be informed and unafraid. And I always have this visual in my mind of a woman, a mom, grabbing a gallon of milk out of the dairy case. And this is before I worked for dairy. I've just always kind of had this image. Now I did do my master's research on dairy back in the early 90s. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, actually on BST and dairy cows. So it was what do Missouri dietitians know about BST and dairy? And then of course, I had to know all the research and, and take a deep dive. And that's where I learned a lot about risk communications and biotechnology. And it was fascinating to me. I will admit when I decided that that would be my thesis, or it was sort of given to me, this will be your thesis. I thought, cows, uh, not exactly. <laughs> cows are so cool. They are cool, but it wasn't exactly what I had in mind. But I was at a big ag school, and I had done my undergrad at a big ag school. And I was like, okay, but once I dove into the research and the content, I was hooked. I was fascinated. But yeah, so I just always have this image of a mom grabbing a gallon of milk and sort of being afraid or worried or nervous or questioning if they're 
grabbing the right one. Mm-hmm. And I don't want people to worry when they go to the store. I want them to know that food is safe. I want them to feel good about whatever choice they make. And so it, it, my values really align with what you're sharing. Well, thank you. And not to get too far off of that, but we should talk sometime because I actually worked on the, one of the final RBST trials oh, at interesting. Michigan State, my alma mater. I was in the barn giving shots to the cows, to be clear. So very different than what you worked on, but a lot of commonalities. But going back to the dairy case, I want to talk about that real quick because I'm sure as all the dietitians can appreciate listening to this. And for anyone else who's out there who's a concerned grocery shopper, this is what I know to be a fact. Dairy products and milk are the absolute best source of calcium, and there's all sorts of science to prove that. And what really concerns me is when we have marketing claims on milk labels, which is a necessity for children to grow muscles, to grow bone, to develop properly. When we have labels that are making claims about antibiotic-free or that organic is superior, I have a tendency to get a little upset because the fact of the matter is milk is milk. All milk is USDA grade A approved. Therefore, it all is antibiotic free. And to pay $8 a gallon of milk is impossible for many moms and dads out there. I don't mean to exclude the dads. Mm -hmm. And people will turn to soda and they'll turn away from milk because when they're confused, they don't trust it, right? Right. And that's so frustrating me. I mean, that was one of the big motivators in writing my book is because I see people feeding soda to their children instead of milk. Mm-hmm. And I can't understand that, not just as a dairy person, but as a food person. Right. Well, yes. And you know, we could talk about dairy all day, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> maybe another podcast interview. Take a deeper dive into each of your nine sections of the grocery store. You know, again, as a supermarket dietitian, I love the fact that you a former supermarket dietitian. I love the fact that your book is organized the way that it is. I think it just makes sense for the shopper to kind of think about, you know, aisle by aisle or, you know, section by section. And then to have it sort of summarized in your 25 food truths to shop and eat without guilt is just a nice way to kind of get to the meat of it, if you will. So let's talk more about the book, what people can find in the book. And you taught some of the contributors. And I mean, you have all kinds of different pieces. Your website is wonderful. It's causematters.com. And I'll have links to that on my show notes at soundbitesrd.com. But you really have embraced technology. I mean, you do Facebook Live videos with other professionals. You have all kinds of resources available, including your previous book, No More Food Fights, on the website. So let's talk more about what people can find in the book and some of the food truths that you want to share today. Obviously, we can't share it all. People are going to have to go get the book to find out. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways that we could go. I'll just share a few samples of some of the food truths. And then you can let me know if you want to take me a different direction. But the food truths start out with basically they appear in order of the book based on the order of the book, not necessarily on importance. So my first food truth is that hormones are on everything. Obviously, as dietitians, you're looking for evidence-based science and supporting claims. And one of the things that I have found is that people do not understand that all living things have hormones in them. It's essential for life. Hormones are actually chemical messengers. So that was one of the things that I addressed first. And then I went into antibiotics. Real quick, before Mm -hmm. you move on to antibiotics, I mean, you know, because I was even surprised to learn this, but when you say hormones are in every living thing, you also mean plants, Absolutely. So this is the best illustration that I can draw quickly. I don't know if you're a syrup fan on pancakes, but you know, we enjoy a nice breakfast on the weekend when I time to cook here, we use syrup. And what I tell people is it's basically you're pouring hormone sap 
onto your breakfast because <laughs> syrup is from trees. Trees have hormones. Trees have to have hormones or they wouldn't be living. Kale is filled with hormones. I would challenge you if you've never looked at some of the hormone illustrations to check hormone levels in kale, soybeans, broccoli, cabbage, and meat, mm-hmm. beef specifically. You will be surprised at the findings. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. I wanted to just touch on that because I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. And, you know, as a woman, and I wrote about this in the book very openly, I hate hormones. I would probably weigh 20 pounds less if it weren't for hormones because I wouldn't be craving chocolate, right? (laughs) (laughs) But the reality is, is hormones are necessary for life. And I provided a lot of science as evidence that consumption of dairy, consumption of meat are not driving early development in girls. It is actually because of the increase of caloric, caloric intake and showing where we've had some changes, obviously, in sedentary behavior in the last 20 years or so. I mean, I'm the mom of a daughter. I get these hormone concerns. Mm-hmm. But there's fact and there's fiction. So I think it's just an interesting opportunity to look at the science, to consider some common sense, and to realize hormones aren't everything. They're not the bad guys. Right. Very so. And then we went into antibiotics, which also brings in food truth number three, which is animal welfare. So antibiotics have gotten a lot of attention and rightfully so, because obviously as a population, we do not want to have to face antibiotic resistance. So what we did was talked about why antibiotics are used by veterinarians and farmers and ranchers, the implications in animal welfare if they are not. And so I use the example of mastitis in a cow, for example, It is cruel to not treat that cow for mastitis, as any woman who has ever had mastitis could attest to. And then explain some of the protocol that are around, you know, I hate to keep going back to milk, but milk, as an example, is tested over and over and over to be sure that any traces are below the minimal level for dairy products because there is an actual withdrawal time in meat animals, rather, and dairy animals. And there are food supply. There is a very specific antibiotic use. There is a very specific protocol to follow. And there is a very specific withdrawal period. So hopefully that provides you some comfort. That's a highly technical area. And then we get into food truths such as number five. Organic farming is about production methods, not nutritional value. Mm. I am an absolute advocate of choice, both in the grocery store and on the farm. I have friends who farm organically. They are featured in the book. I also have friends who farm conventionally. I have small farmers and I have large farmers. But the reality is, is that it is a production method. It's not necessarily nutritional value. And I was grateful to a number of dietitians who actually provided some science and some quotes around some of that. And then we go on through the book and we cover things like genes are the coolest ingredient on your plate. And that one was actually really fun to step back and look at because it's not just about GMOs. It's also thinking through some of the advantages and animal welfare that genes have offered to us. It's also looking at some of the environmental advantages and helping people understand in a population that Jason Lusk's study out of Oklahoma State showed that 80% of our population believes that food that has DNA in it should be labeled. I'll let that one sink in because all food has DNA in it. (laughs) It's a huge challenge to write about genes are the coolest ingredient on your plate when people don't understand there's DNA in our food. Mm -hmm. And I would just urge you before you freak about genetics to 
step back and think about what genetics have offered, such as seedless grapes, to think about the fact that the very first GMO food products were happened, it's either 6,000 or 8,000 years ago. I apologize. I forget the number. And there's multiple sources proving this. Soil was the engineer and bacterium were the contributors to sweet potatoes. And basically, they took a gene from the bacterium into the sweet potato, naturally, Mm -hmm. all natural GMO. And so I would just urge people to think about genetics as an opportunity rather than something that should be freaking you out and to learn a little bit more about it with an open mind. And, you know, it's completely your choice if you choose non-GMO. I'm fine with that. But I would beg of you to consider the science behind it and to not limit choices on the farm. Right. That's something that I don't think people think about. And this freedom to operate, letting the farmers have the choices that they want to choose to make the farming efficient and effective. And I don't want my choices limited at the grocery store. You know, I want to be able to choose the conventional over the organic if I want to. Yeah, I think we have to talk about food prices. And that is one of the food truths. It is, I'm looking for it. I lost it on the list. But basically, oh, number seven. Thank you. Food costs are a shared concern. I realize that a lot of folks 98.5% of the population is not on a farmer ranch. And I realize that if you haven't stepped foot on a farmer ranch or had the opportunity to talk to a farmer about why they do what they do, it's really hard to understand this. But farmers are driven not only by profitability, but also about caring for their land and animals in a way that will last for future generations. And Food costs are a very real concern because we're dealing with more regulations on the farmer ranch, we're dealing with more skepticism, and we're dealing with significantly more financial pressures. And ultimately, at the end of the day, that takes us to number 12 in a roundabout way. Sustainability is complex and essential to family businesses. That's something that's really important on the agriculture side of the plate, and I know it is on the food side of the plate because 40% of our food's thrown away, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's crazy. Food waste, yep. Yes. So anyhow, that gets to a whole bunch of food truths. But those are some of the different highlights. And yeah, I think it's interesting. If you have people in your life that are just worried about the time and being able to buy the right food, the last food truth, and very strategically so, because it is the last chapter and because I wanted an entire chapter about it, is that buying and eating Mm. the right food doesn't have to be time-consuming. You do not need a science degree. And, And what I really challenge people to do is to know their own standards and be able to communicate effectively of what those standards are or even just understand them so that they aren't being swayed by marketing because I'm sure, Melissa, you've seen tons of marketing in the store, right? Oh, yeah. It it leads to guilt. Right. Exactly. Yes. All the fear mongering and the fear factor when it comes to food. And, you know, I like to say that, you know, I try to help people make their own well-informed food and nutrition decisions based on facts and not fear. You mentioned sustainability, and I want to give a shout out to one of my most popular and one of my most favorite podcast episodes. Um, I interviewed Jack Bobo. The title, it's podcast number 43 or episode number 43, and it's The Surprising Truth About Sustainable Agriculture. And he really gets into, you know, some of those aspects and, you know, shows how it's not black and white and, you know, something could sound good, but it might not be and vice versa. So 
Yeah, it is absolutely amazing. And what I try to do, and I think this is right in line with what you suggest, is to arm food buyers to make decisions on their own social, ethical, environmental, and health standards. Mm-hmm. You know, my health standards are such that if I choose to eat ice cream for breakfast, I do so. <laughs> and I go to the gym. <laughs> Right. Because it's about balance and moderation. Now, someone else's health standards might be that they won't eat ice cream, but they'll eat a 16 ounce steak. You know, there's all sorts of different standards out there. So I think you just have to find your own standards and align your family's food selection with those. And don't feel guilty about it because you're making the right choice for your family. Right. Yes. Sort of that permission to enjoy it and to not feel bad about it. And to be free to, you know, have the flexibility to have the variety and to celebrate that food. Definitely. Yeah. One of my favorite food truths that you shared, you know, is number 21. Convenience is reality. It's not always wrong or right. Again, you know, having been a supermarket dietitian, you know, sometimes convenience products cost more money, but it's saving your time. Sometimes, you know, yeah, they might have maybe more salt or fat or sugar or whatever added to them. But, you know, you balance that out throughout the day, throughout the week. And I like your idea about ice cream for breakfast, because I'm always talking about, you know, my preferred breakfast would be a brownie. If I could buy a healthy one, that'd be awesome. But <laughs> <laughs> and I talk about it a lot on the podcast, because I'm sure one of these days, and actually, <laughs> people have sent me recipes and different products, you know, not send me the product, but send me the suggestion, go try this product or go try that product. So one day, <laughs> my quest will be over. Well, you know, I just want to offer, because I know those of you that work as dietitians probably see this day in, day out, but I've been shocked because in some of my informal research, I gathered my friends around my living room and we sipped wine and I asked them very pointed questions about how they made their food and what they felt. And I was shocked because really successful moms, both successful as moms and as professionals, strong women that I would never have guessed worried about perceptions in the grocery store. What I would hear would be, well, I'm worried that someone will judge me because they see I have a frozen pizza in my cart and my son is overweight. Or Mm -hmm. I worry that someone from CrossFit will see me and see that I don't just have fruits and vegetables and they'll judge me. Or a friend up in Milwaukee will say, well, if I don't have the right brand on my bag or the right brand on my food that I take to school, I will be judged. That's sad to me. And I mean, even so far as I had another group of moms that got together around a friend's kitchen table that said, well, yeah, we have to have the right brand on our bag because when our neighbors see us unload the car, they'll judge us. Wow. Yeah. Food should not ever be about judgment. I'm very, very opinionated about that one. You know, food is not about judgment. That's ridiculous. Mm Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And I'm now I'm trying to think about my neighborhood and the school my kid goes to and things like that. And there have been times on field trips and such where, you know, someone will make a comment about GMOs or something and I'll, you know, add my little two cents of sound science and I'll kind of get a look like I have three heads or something. And I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, just believe what you want to believe. <laughs> I'm here to set the record straight for those who are open to hearing about it. Yeah. And it can be a difficult conversation to have. I get that. Trust me. Yeah. And a lot of times I am honest, I will not engage in it if I'm not in the mood. (laughs) There have been times where I've kind of kicked my husband under the table like, nope, don't bring me up. Don't just let the person talk and let's just have a nice dinner. And I really don't want to get into a food fight. (laughs) 
Yes, no, I completely understand that. And when you're home, you just want to be home and be a mom. I get it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is interesting. And the sort of, you know, I hate to use the word, I mean, definitely judgment, but sometimes there's an elitist feel to it. And, you know, I grew up on food stamps. One of my first jobs during graduate school was WIC. I work primarily with people with diabetes who the economics are a big issue. And I think that is beneath some of my guilt-free approach and that, you know, wanting to reassure people because most of the people I'm talking to or working with can't afford some of these other options, like you said, the $8 gallon of milk. And I don't want them to feel that there's anything wrong if they can't afford that. Yeah. And you know, that is a wonderful perspective. I had no idea you grew up on food stamps. And I mean, what a tribute to you for everything that you're doing from diabetes education to dietetics to all of it. But I think that if we want to change the course of the conversation around food and nutrition in this country, we have to help more people understand that because the debate that we have and the ridiculous claims that we have on food labels is a very privileged discussion. Mm -hmm. I have looked into the eyes of starving children in Africa. Mm -hmm. I have walked the streets of Egypt while I was working there and I saw gypsy children that didn't know where their next meal was coming from. I happen to believe very strongly in being able to feed the world. I know that 40% of Americans don't believe that based on all the research. However, that is a driving factor of the agricultural population. And I really struggle when you look at one of five people in this country, in the United States of America, one of five people, including the majority of those being children, go to bed hungry or are food insecure. Mm. There's something wrong with that. Right. Yes. I'd much rather see us, you know, having more conversations about food waste and food pantries, you know, helping redistribute the food, you know, cut down on the waste and redistribute the food so that those who need it get more of it. Yeah, it's shocking to think about food waste. Forty percent of the food, again, is thrown away in this country. And I brought that in as one of the food truths because a lot of people do not understand that the answer to food waste is most often hidden in your refrigerator. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. I've mentioned on the show before that I did a 30-day food waste challenge with the Beef Council because I'm on the Beef Expert Bureau. And one of their tips was to shop your kitchen. And when I looked and you know, see, well, what's in my refrigerator that needs to be eaten before it goes bad, that helped me adjust my meal planning for the week. And I think there was one week in particular where I said, I'm not going to the grocery store. I've got enough in my pantry, my freezer, my fridge, and just figured out how to put it all together. And it was, it was kind of fun. But it was definitely an interesting learning process to see what types of food I was wasting, how much, and you know what types of changes we could make on a week-to-week basis to change that. Yeah, it's funny because not because of any great strategy on my part, but just I think out of sheer desperation to have enough time about the last 15 days to probably 20 days that I was finishing the manuscript last April, I didn't go to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So now I have a very large deep freezer. I live out in the country, Mm -hmm. so I have a variety of things. But I was eating a lot of different things by the end of it. But I didn't have food waste for once because, you know, I too am guilty of the brown pile in the back of the refrigerator and and the things that we all are. But one of the things that I mentioned in the book and, and specifically in food waste was bacteria because a lot of people think that bacteria is bad. Well, 
bacteria also has very positive implications from fermentation to the fact that we all have all sorts of bacteria in our guts and to talk through some of the science behind that because when it comes down to meat as an example you know people are worried about their food safety and many concerns are around cooked meat being cooked properly mm-hmm. And simple things like using a meat thermometer and understanding, yeah, in fact, there is bacteria in meat and there always has been. And by the way, you have bacteria crawling all over your hands, all over your kitchen counter. And if you want to know something really disgusting, look up the comparison between bacterial counts in toilets and your kitchen drain. Mm. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's funny. I'm glad you brought that up because I am what I like to call myself a food safety freak, fanatic, whatever you want to say. And so when the whole food waste theme started becoming more popular in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, but what about like, at what point should you not eat something? And I actually did a podcast interview with Judy Barb recently, and she is a master at repurposing food. And so if anybody's interested, she also has a wonderful book. But we talked a lot about my challenge with, okay, I get to the end of the week, and I've got a lot of leftover produce or salads. And, you know, how do I repurpose that? Maybe like our Friday night taco night or Friday night pizza night or soup or something like that. So, you know, she had some really creative suggestions, but neat. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I do. I worry about the food safety stuff myself as well, but there's so much that you can do to either, you know, we talked about like wishful thinking, maybe you're over purchasing certain foods or, you know, getting them into a way that you can put them in the freezer or get them into a meal before they go bad and that sort of a thing. So yeah, I mean, it's certainly a challenge. If it was easy, we wouldn't have food waste, but yeah, exactly. But I do think getting back to not just food waste, but being able to change the course of the conversation so that it is more inclusive of everyone. And everyone is not the people who just shop at Whole Foods. No disrespect to Whole Foods or those that shop there. But the food discussion is also about the people that shop at Walmart. And it's also about the people that shop on food stamps. And I think it's really a disservice to everyone in the food and nutrition conversation if we lose sight of that. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I love that word inclusive, you know, and of course, you know, there's the food deserts and there's a lot of challenges, but if we're coming off kind of elitist, then we are excluding a lot of people who need our help. Well, exactly. And I think that dietitians have so much opportunity to empower people to be smart about food, to empower them with the types of truths that I cover and food truths from farm to table so that people know what questions to ask about food. Because the food elitists are driving the conversation and they are not the people with all due respect that have RDN behind their name. It's the journalists, it's the celebrities. And I have so much respect for the registered dietitian nutritionists that are out there that are trying to help people understand the science behind their food and equip them so that they can be smart about food, because it really is about empowering people, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's another buzzword that I love is empowering. I really feel that, you know, I came up with the slogan when I was doing a media training, but you know, dietitians are not the food police, we're more like coaches than referees. (laughs) And we're supposed to be empowering people. And I know that, you know, when you ask dietitians why they went into the field, they'll say, I want to help people. And, you know, I think that sometimes it's hard to translate the one-on-one to the group masses. But again, to your point, a lot of what we hear in the media 
is not coming from dietitians. And so that's why I'm so passionate about getting more dietitians into the media. And I noticed on your website, you have a lot of resources for communicating science. And so I'm going to, I didn't see those before, I'm going to review those and perhaps add some of those to my sound science toolkit. That's a free downloadable that I have that's primarily for dietitians, but anybody can download it on my website at soundbitesrd.com. But yeah, you've got some articles and resources that can help people communicate, you say making science sexy, communicating your relevancy. You've got workshops, taking science social, things like that. So I'll be sure to include those resources in my site as well. Well, that would be great. And actually on that note, Melissa, on my site, I include a compilation of blogs. I have farm and rancher blogs. I have advocate blogs, but I also compile registered dietitian and food science blogs. So mm. if you are listening and you have a blog, by all means, email me mpain, it's P-A-Y-N, at causematters.com, or you're welcome to go to my website, causematters.com, and check it out. I'm delighted to add your blog. If you shoot me a message or you can connect with me at mpain speaker over social media. And I have tweets that go out that call out for the dietetic blogs, because I really do believe that RDNs have a critical voice in this discussion. And I would ask all of you as you're making recommendations, and it's around the hot topics like what are covered food truths from farm to table, are you sure you have the science to back it up? Because there are times that I find that, you know, personal perception and misinformation enter uh, the conversation, and you all are a really important piece to keeping that evidence-based versus emotional. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we kind of talk about, you know, finding that shared value and that common ground starting there instead of trying to start with the science. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as you well know, and it was excruciatingly hard for me when I sat down to write the book, because I mean, it's overwhelming. 25 food truths, the entire grocery store, and there's how many thousands of products in a grocery store? Mm. Actually, the close of my book, a note about the remaining aisles. I did not discuss each of the 42,000 products you'll find in a grocery store, nor did I touch on every issue and aisle because it's too vast of a field. But what I was going to say is when I sat down and wrote it, what I finally figured out is if I could lead with the stories. Mm-hmm that offered the context, my own stories. I mean, a quick example, I have two great Pyrenees dogs, beautiful 125 pound dogs that are extraordinarily protective of my cattle and of my family. And a couple of winters ago, there was a terrible blizzard. It was all over social media. You have to take care of your animals. You need to bring your dogs inside. I mean, I had cattle out there that I had gone out and made sure they had more than enough feed, that their water was unfrozen, that they could be protected and so forth. But I kept seeing on Facebook that I needed to take care of my dogs better. And it made me feel bad. Mm. So I go out there and I discover both of the Pyrenees dogs playing (laughs) and jumping around and having the time of their lives in the midst of a 20 mile an hour wind driving sleet and snow and perfectly happy because they were bred in the mountains of France. They love cold weather. (laughs) I share that story seemingly unrelated to farm animal care, but it offers context because there are times when we do things to animals that seem cruel, but when you wrap context around it, it actually is the best thing for an animal. An example of that would be filing beaks on chickens or removing eye teeth on pigs because they kill each other. Right. 
they're mean. They're bullies. Mm -hmm. And so there's all this context that's been missing from this food conversation. And I truly just wanted to bring context to the people who raise food and why we do what we do. You don't have to agree with it. I understand people won't necessarily agree with it, but at least it's the truth from the people that are out there producing the food. Right. The folks who are doing the daily work and know more about this work than any of us do. And stories are a great way to do that. And, you know, to your point about the dogs out there, you know, I have a husky mix. I know it's never too cold for him. Oh, and, yes. Um, <laughs> and I'll be like, really? It's 10 below. You want to go for a walk? He's like, yes, I do. I'm like, okay, let's go. But, you know, with regard to the animals and, you know, some of the things like you said with the beaks and the teeth, you know, it could seem like a cruel thing to do. But when you learn the full context and the full story, then you understand better. And, you know, one of the things that I know happens a lot with the lay public, you know, thinking about agriculture is they think that animals should be treated like humans. And it's called, I believe it's called anthropomorphism, where you humanize an animal. And so I came up with this phrase that says, treating animals humanely doesn't mean treating them like a human. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And I would add to that, my cow is not your dog. (laughs) I like that. You know, I love my cattle and I have had this lifelong love affair with them. But at the same time, I know that their purpose in life is to provide food for us. And it is an absolute honor and privilege for me to care for them. But at the end of it all, their purpose is to provide food for human beings. Mm Mm-hmm. And my cow's not your dog. And it, I think you're absolutely right, Melissa, that anthropomorphization. And, you know, I'm guilty, too. My daughter's hugged a rodent at Walt Disney World. Mm-hmm. We're all guilty to some extent. But I think stepping back and having an honest, transparent conversation, yes, animals die so we can eat. And I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you need that meat for your iron and your protein and to be healthy. And studies clearly show that girls especially are not getting enough protein. Right. Well, and that actually, I've done several protein episodes, which I'll just, you know, if anybody's interested in protein, you can look on my show notes under the podcast directory. I've done a lot of different episodes on protein from the research to recipes. So check that out. I did a 30 day protein challenge as well with the beef council hashtag client. So, well, you know, that's a great resource that I will also add. I am good friends with a PhD meat scientist, Jenny Hodgen, and She's done a couple of Facebook lives on food safety and the necessity of meats and so forth. So you can find those at Cause Matters on the media page or on either of my Facebooks, my page at Cause Matters or my personal profile, too. You know, meat's one of those areas that people seem a little queasy to talk about, no pun intended, but it is an absolutely important part of our diet. Right. And, you know, certainly, you know, some people are vegan, some people are vegetarian, One of the reasons I'm so interested in protein really stemmed from my work with diabetes because they need a really balanced diet. They can't have, well, I shouldn't say can't, that's not, it's easier for them to control their blood sugars when they have a balance of protein and carbs. It's harder for them if they're vegan or vegetarian because just by nature of that, you know, macronutrient, it's going to be higher in carbohydrate. Now, different people have different needs, and and some certainly can do it. But that's where my interest started. And then with my own 
weightlifting and running and things like that, I kind of applied some of the weight management aspects to my own life and that sort of a thing. But yeah, definitely an area of interest for me. And I appreciate you sharing those resources. I will definitely have all of your website, all of your social media. You've mentioned, you know, a lot of those URLs and the handles and all that, but I'll have all of that on my show notes at soundbitesrd.com and just everything that we've talked about. But I was really excited to find out, and I want you to share this with our listeners, that you're working on something new with today's dietitian. I am actually. Thank you for mentioning that. So Excuse me, Food Truths from Farm to Table has actually been accredited by today's dietitian for continuing education credits for RDNs and DTRs. So I am very excited about that. And it was actually uh, named as a number one new release on Amazon in January. Congratulations. Um, well. well, thank you. And I have no idea what's happening. I did apply for a Fency session as well. So I hope to be with several of you live and in person in Chicago this fall. But the book will be available for continuing education. We are working on additional accreditation. So if any of you have suggestions on how to extend the reach into other dietitian audiences or you know uh, dietitian audiences that are interested in having a speaker on this perspective, I'm invited to connect. You know, over the last handful of years, I've been able to meet people like yourself, Melissa, and Mary Lee, and, and other folks in the dietetic community. And I can't tell you how much respect I have for you, but I think what's most exciting is the commonality. You know, you all inspired the whole connectivity idea between or at the center of the plate because there's so much in common between nutrition and dietetics and farming and ranching. Hmm. And we just need to do a better job of bringing our two worlds together. Well, yes, thank you. Yeah, and I think the key is communication and that's where you have focused your efforts and really become an expert in that arena. And so it's not just the speaking, it's not just your book. I mentioned earlier, you really embrace social media. And, you know, I have to give a shout out to Kara Harbstreet because I saw your recent video with her. And (laughs) I met her at Today's Dietitian in Orlando last year when I was doing a workshop on podcasting and videos. And she's a joy as well. Like she's just so full of energy and really interested in the ag field. So, you know, the more dietitians and farmers get connected like you are doing, the better for everybody. Yeah, it was funny because Kara was actually one of the first Facebook Lives I did, and she was the first dietitian. And I just so enjoyed talking to her. I only knew her because of the Ag Chat Foundation and her attending the Ag Chat Foundation's uh, training event, as well as Food Chat on Twitter, too. So if y'all aren't familiar with Food Chat and Ag Chat, it's hashtag A-G-C-H-A-T, in case you can't understand my accent. Mm-hmm. Check them out because those chats have been going on since 2009, which is a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I'm starting to date myself. Wow, that's a great resource. I'm glad you mentioned that because I've really enjoyed participating in some of the hashtag Ag Chats, too. And to your point, I stand corrected. I actually met Kara on social media before I met her in person. So it was, you know, one of those situations where it's like, hey, we get to meet live. And that's, that's yeah, one of the great cool? things. Yeah. Yeah. So if you and I are ever at a conference and we don't know each other, we're going to be there. This is the way it usually goes. Somebody will tell me their name and I'll say, oh, it's nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And then they'll tell me their handle and I'll go, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and now I know who you are, right? Yeah. Exactly, because that's the fun of it is being able to, you know, over time you develop a relationship with these people or you at least get an inside look at their life. And to me, that just shows more about the commonality of the connections Mm -hmm. and the opportunity that those personal stories, I think, really lead to trust 
right? You know, some of my workshops and trainings focus on social media. And I tell people it's called social media for a reason. It might feel antisocial, but it really is very social. Well, yeah. And I think that if you want a case study, aside from politics, which I refuse to discuss, Mm -hmm. but if you want a case study of social media gone wrong is to look at where social media has taken the food conversation around GMO and HFCS and antibiotics and hormones and many of the issues that I cover in Food Truths from farm to table, because they don't have to be as contentious as they are. Right. We need to have a dialogue, not an argument. And we need more dietitian voices out there. And, you know, I know that a lot of dietitians have questions or they're getting questions that they can't answer. And I know that your book will help a lot of us be just better equipped to help the consumer like not feel guilty and to enjoy their food like we've been discussing. Yeah, I sure hope so. And I appreciate all the dietitians that contributed to it and those that endorsed it. And I appreciate the work that you are doing. So if I can be a resource to any of you, please feel free to connect with me. I'm always happy to hear from people in dietetic community. And if you have a different perspective you'd like to offer, I also welcome that as well. Excellent. Wonderful. And I hope that you are speaking at Fancy. It's in Chicago. So of course, I will be there. And yeah, I think it's a great idea too, not to ramp up your travel schedule, but would love to see you speaking at state meetings next spring. So if anybody's looking for a good speaker, a great speaker, Michelle is your gal. So well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I will make sure that I connect you with in the agriculture community too. So wonderful. Thank you. Well, I could talk to you all day about your book and all your work, but got to wrap up the show. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for all the work you do. And I look forward to staying connected with you and seeing what else you have going on and really excited about the Today's Dietitian CEU opportunity for dietitians. So I'll make sure to have a link or information about that as well. Very good. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Take care. And for everybody listening, as always... Enjoy your food with health in mind, and maybe enjoy your food with food truths in mind. For more information, visit soundbitesrd.com. Music by Dave Burke. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. 